song is Hang Ten El Diablo. It's from a band called The Lyrids. They're a cool band out of Ottawa. The album is called Surfing One Hell of a Wave. You can find them on Facebook or Bandcamp or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's our website for the podcast that you're listening to right now, Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. Thank you for downloading the show and spending some time with us while we talk with Ron Nelson about the movie The Return of the Vampire. Now, we talked a little bit about that a couple of days ago in episode 233. Here in episode 234, we're going to keep talking about that movie, talk a little bit more with Ron about some of his favorite movies, how The Return of the Vampire might have influenced some other filmmakers or not. We're just seeing some parallels here. Doesn't matter. It's a fun conversation about a fun movie. I had a great time chatting with Ron. Now, after we talk to Ron, we're also going to get some feedback. We got two voicemails from Stephen D. Sullivan about Doctor Who. Last week on episodes 231 and 232, Casey Criswell, my co-host over at 1951 Down Place, joined me to talk about Daleks, Invasion Earth 2150 AD. It was a lot of fun to talk about a Doctor Who film, not just because it had Peter Cushing in the movie, but because I really enjoy podcasting with Casey. Well, Stephen D. Sullivan is a long-time movieian, and he's got some more information to share about Doctor Who, about all things Doctor Who, in these two voicemails. I also have a special announcement about what's going to be happening moving forward with Monster Kid Radio starting next week. So that's going to be coming near the end of the episode. But first, we're going to continue our conversation with Ron Nelson about the return of the vampire. And we're going to get to that right after this. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. Rats. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? What's he done to you, today? Tell me. He came to me. Master, 
time for you to go out. Something terrible has happened. You dared open the bar door. Believe me when I say that what you're doing places yourself and the rest of your party in the gravest danger. Inside lie monsters greater than your worst nightmares. They were all evil in life and remained evil after death. And now the terror is loose upon the podcasting world again. It's not in my power to help you. You're the only one that understands. Nobody else in the world will believe me. This September and October, dare to visit Supermate's estates and walk the halls in this hall of horror, this abode of angst. Return to the House of Frankenstein. Legends of classic horror spread their evil, but fear not. Your favorite heroes are here to challenge them. Do me a favor, Shaggy. Stay down. Yes, not. Beware these masters of the macabre. Bella Lugosi. Your fate is to be what you are, but mine is to be what I am. Lon Chaney Jr. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Christopher Lee. I am come unto thee, O Osiris, what cleansed of all impurities. Peter Cushing. Consequences? It sounds like a threat. And Ingrid Pitt. You must die! Everybody must die! Is Supermates Comic.blogspot.com production coming soon to an iTunes near you? Return to the house of Franklin Stein. They are just dying to greet you. Opens its horror vault to release. Three macabre masterpieces. Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula, Lord High Priest of the Living Dead begins a legend of fear as he claims the soul of his first victim with the mark of the vampire. Boris Karloff as the evil Fu Manchu, his passion for power twisting his brilliant mind as he revels in the horrors of human sacrifice and torture. Behind the mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick Marsh as the futuristic experimenter, Dr. Jekyll, using chemistry to expand his mind. Delving into the taboos of the unnatural. To free the primitive, savage, murderer, Mr. Hyde, in the screen's first classic portrayal of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Bella Lugosi, 
mask of the vampire. Boris Karloff, the mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick March. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Torture. Terror. Taboo. Together in a triple trip to the time when terror began. Now from MGM. Three immortal horrors never seen on the little screen. because he's did he did a lot of b type pictures but this one looks like an a picture it does yeah and from a technical level i would actually say it's probably his best movie no insult to the raven because i i like the raven a lot but um i don't know the raven doesn't have wolfman and and armin tesla in it <laughs> I, had to, I had to correct myself <laughs> but it has karloff in it so the raven's good <laughs> The Raven's good. And, you know, it's a universal production, so you know, you know, universal from the 30s, so you know it's going to be solid. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that was their high point. Yeah, Universal was such a house of horrors in the 30s. Their stuff, everything was aces in the 30s, uh, kind of revolutionary. But then, then you get into the 40s, and their stuff did become more kiddie matinee. Not that it's bad, because I still love those later Universal movies. Uh, they're, they're a hell of a lot of fun, but... Um, I don't know. There's something about them. They don't have the depth that the, the ones of the 30s had. I was talking about this with Nicholas Hatcher when we had him on to talk about some of the Mummy movies. That in the 30s, there are these big prestige productions. But you get into the mid-40s, and they are B-pictures. They don't have nearly as much money thrown at them. They are shorter. Their target audience is skewed a lot younger. And I don't know if that was a universal thing. I'm not sure if that was a, how things were at the time in, in the movie watching culture, but they do kind of skew a little younger. This one, I don't think goes there. This one's an epic. No, this one, this one gets into some darker themes that you, you didn't really see in some of the universal movies, um, particularly by actually incorporating World War II into the movie. I know. That, that- is amazing. You, you, you just didn't see that in fantasy horror movies, you know, where the, most of them were escapes. You didn't want to think about the war, but this one brings it right into the plot of the movie. And it's an essential part. Without the Blitz, there's no story here. You'd have no vampire without the London Blitz. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's so cool. And that's what immediately hooked me to this movie. And I, I thought, oh man, this is 
something special. But what, what's neat about the movie and why I think it's actually a lot deeper than people kind of give it credit for is throughout the movie, you're dealing with the vampire plot. You know, that's a big thing. But in the back of your mind, you're still thinking about the London Blitz. You're still thinking World War II is happening while this is happening. Uh, Andreas has to go meet a guy who is coming from a concentration camp. So the heavy. war, yeah. it's still happening. And then by the end of the movie, when you have all of your monsters together and then bombs coming down, it's almost like them saying, this is the horror of today versus the horror of the past. It's like the modern warfare, the horrors of war, stomping out the monsters of folklore, like out with the old, in with the new. This oh, is wow. a anymore and then you do have when uh fleet you know turns to the camera and says do you believe in this you know and i'm sure that maybe that's what they were going for you know like here we are you know we're watching monster movies as escapism but this is the stuff that's happening right around the corner (laughs) to incorporate that into a movie like this you mentioned earlier that like the forest set the cemetery set from the earlier universal films i feel like a fairy tale there's nothing fairy tale about the Germans dropping bombs on London. No, not at all. And uh, I, I think that element is really fascinating to to add to a movie like this because the movie could have been just another Dracula-type movie, and it would have been fun regardless. It's got Lugosi in it. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got my viewing. But I think by adding that, they added another layer, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, that I think really kind of separates this movie from a lot of the rest. I remember when I first saw it, that was the, this, the, that was the thing that I took away from it the most, probably, was that it did have that World War II element. The real monsters around the corner, that um, their presence is felt. But, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that one of the first monster movies you saw was The Monster Squad, so I'm wondering if there's a connection there for you, because in The Monster Squad, there's that one moment with Scary German Guy. When they tell him, you must know a lot about monsters, and he looks at the concentration camp tattoo on his wrist and says, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Oh, yeah. It brings a little bit of that back in, you know? And I'm sure Fred Decker probably watched this movie. Sure. (laughs) He seemed to, uh, yeah, include just about everything in that movie. Mm -hmm. So, But I I love stuff like that, when you can um, bring a little bit of real world into your fantasy, like show, like... You know, not all the time. I wouldn't want it done all the time, but it is kind of neat when a movie does address that, yeah, yeah, monsters are real and they are us because the monsters almost are an exaggerated version of us anyway. So Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of cool when when they do that. It grounds it more. Yeah, I do like that a lot. It's kind of neat to see this movie do that. We've talked a lot about Lugosi because really... It's Lugosi as Dracula, even though they couldn't call him Dracula because Universal's breathing down their neck. They call him something else. There's a heck of a cast here. It's not just Lugosi's film. Now, Lugosi's got top billing, and I think it's the last time he gets top billing. But there is a great cast around him, and I really respond well to seeing a strong woman character in a classic movie like this. Oh, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about her. It's Lady Jane Easley, played by Frida. Is it Inus Court? She was great, and she was an older woman, too, which you didn't see a lot in these movies. Was she made up to be older? I think so. Because the whole time I was watching the movie, I was trying to figure that out. I was like, 
She made up to be older because <laughs> they do the flashback and then they cut years later. So I, I think they did. But even then, you, you didn't see that a lot either. Like an older woman, a more mature woman as essentially she's the lead character. And she was 42 when this movie came out. Oh, okay. So she was middle-aged. Okay, cool. Which, again, you don't see that for a lot of these movies. Again, it gives it a little bit more reality. Yeah, well, she she almost um, – that was another parallel I noticed uh, between this and Dracula – she was essentially like Dr. Seward, actually, because she had uh, her um, sanitarium. Right. It was a clinic. She had that, and then Andreas is working for her. And in my mind, it almost seems like, again, Andreas was supposed to be Renfield. It would have been Renfield working for Dr. Seward, you know, at least that that's how I was like, I wonder if that was the intention, and then they changed it, because it seems like, Pretty big coincidence. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but it ended up working out because, yeah, uh, having a, a older woman as essentially the lead, she's not necessarily the hero of the story, but she drives a good portion of the plot along. Oh, she's essential. Uh-huh. And, and I love it. I love, and I love her performance in this. I don't know a lot about the actress. I don't know if I've seen much with her in it, or at least if I have, I, I haven't really registered it. No, nah, neither do I. But, um, I, I do like, yeah, her performance in this was great, particularly her confrontation with Tesla oh, where she, at the piano. That's fantastic. It's one of my favorite scenes of the whole film. And me too. It's really great. Of course, you know, the uh, Scotland Yard fleet, you know, arrives too late to see it. But yeah, he disappears into a big puff of smoke. It's, it's dramatic. Yeah, it, it's really cool. <laughs> Agreed. Now, the other female lead in this, Anita Fosh, she had done another werewolf movie as well and she'd been acting up until almost up until she passed on in 2008 she did a lot of work she was still active in the industry i really like her as well um i do too she's the victim in this and this is an early early film for her this is i believe her second film probably her first feature length yeah you mentioned the werewolf movie it's the cry of the werewolf actually Mm -hmm. which i always like when i saw her name when in rewatching the movie i i'd forgotten she was in this and mm. i saw the name and i was like what did i watch recently with her in it and i looked at my collection i saw cry of the werewolf oh yeah that's where i saw yep. her oh yep. cool which came out the following year and it was written by griffin j who was also involved with the screenplay of the return of the vampire yeah columbia too yep yeah, Return of the Vampire really kind of started something for them for a while <laughs> I, I enjoyed her a lot she's one of those kind of quintessential 1940s uh, horror actresses, I think. One that kind of gets passed over a lot. Um, you know, when we tend to think of 40s, we always think of Evelyn Anchors, you know, as the, mm-hmm. the big one. But I think she's right up there with her. Huh. I could see that. I could yeah, see that. See, the, I would love to see the two of them. It would have been awesome to see the two of them together in a movie. I would like to see all of them in one movie. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do the uh, 1940s Scream Queen special, and we'll have uh, <laughs> Akers and uh, Nina Foch and Ramsey Ames, and <laughs> we'll have all of them in there. I like it. Uh, again, you know, strong um, echoes of Mina in there, but completely different performance than what um, uh, Helen Chandler did in Dracula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a lot more subdued. I I like that her character was in the military. Yeah. In the very beginning, you see her and her boyfriend, you know, they're both in the military. And again, that's that extra layer of, yep, the war, you know, we're coming back from the war and this is still out there. And 
And also to see, you know, a woman who had handled herself in wartime, you know, being, uh, you know, coming back only to deal with this vampire. How cruel is that? <laughs> right. And as a character, oh, I don't care about me. I'm more worried about John, you know, my fiance. To see the tables turned that way in an early 40s film, because usually it's the, the man who wants to sacrifice all for his woman. Well, this is the other way around. Oh, and yeah. I, and I like that as well, that self-sacrificing, wanting to serve somebody else approach. Women in the movie, the two women characters are the ones that actually do stuff. Um, yeah. John, he's barely in the movie at all. He's just kind of, oh, yeah, I have a boyfriend. His name's John. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> but the women, you know, I mean, they're they're the ones, you know, all the men, they're the doubters. They don't believe in the vampires. Uh, but no, the two women are the ones that really drive the story. The only real man in the movie is uh, Andreas, and, and he's a wolf man. Right. So. <laughs> we, we mentioned him earlier, played by Matt Willis, brought something completely different to the table than what Cheney would bring for Talbot. Really appreciated what he was doing. Think he gets underrated and doesn't get enough credit for the performance. I, I hate to bring it up, but um, the Howling they did this uh, documentary for it. It was really kind of neat. Uh, all the pictures of the werewolves they used were of Matt Willis. Seriously, from this movie. Yeah, I was like, oh, hey, there he is. Nice to see him getting some love. Oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. And then you, you had showed me that that link the other day about the uh, that action figure that someone made of him. Right, that was uh, Distinctive Dummies, I believe, is the one that put that that together. So to see him get some more and more attention would be great. I would actually pay a lot of money for a series of werewolf statues. You just have kind of like uh, DC's doing that Batman Black and White series, you know, where every artist has a Batman. It'd be really great if they did um, a, a werewolf series and. Just every werewolf that has ever appeared in movies. Oh, wow. How much fun would that be? I would just line them up yeah. by year, of course. You know. Oh, of course we would. That's because that's what we would do. <laughs> We're monster kids. Come on. <laughs> Your timeline. It's funny because I actually have my movies ordered by year. Most people alphabetize them. I have them by, like, era. <laughs> <laughs> I started to do that, but then I realized there's just way too many of them. And what happens when I get another movie from 1935? You know, I can't shift them all around again, so I just can't. Or, or box, box sets. Which oh, have, man, that throws like, everything off. Those are <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, Frederick Fleet, Sir Fleet from Scotland Yard, played by Miles Mander. I like yes. him as the counterpoint to Lady Jane Ainsley. He's the doubter. He's the one that doesn't buy any of this. But I, I feel like they get real close to getting to kind of bumbling with him, but not quite. He's just right there at the edge, especially toward the end of the movie. He's just right there at the edge. He's almost like um, Commissioner Gordon in the Adam West Batman show. <laughs> yeah? He's on the outside kind of looking in, like, not completely with it and will be the last one to figure everything out. <laughs> well, even at the end of the movie, he's not believing. Yeah, exactly. Despite everything they've seen. But I think it works Again, for the themes of the movie, when you really take in the war context and, uh, hey, why do you believe in this? But when there's real horror going on, I, I think it kind of works. Plus, it, it almost alludes to the ending of the original ending to the Lugosi Dracula, which had uh, Edward Van Sloan, you know, saying, you know, such things do exist. It almost acts as a counterbalance to that, like rather than saying. Hey, when you're driving home, uh, remember, such things do exist. 
he says, do you believe in this? Well, it's true. Yeah, there's so much in this movie that calls back to Dracula, that calls back to the Universal movies. Man, if Universal hadn't gotten their hackles up about lawsuits, this would be right at home in that legacy box set. Yeah, it could have been, yeah. I mean, it's not a Universal movie, but still. Well, I know Universal at the time was planning a Dracula versus Wolfman movie. I believe I've got a copy of that script around here somewhere. I think it was published. Ah, oh, cool. And I've read it, and it's cool. I would have loved to have seen that. I have to get a hold of a copy of that. I, I heard it was out there, but I, I need to find it. I want to see what it was like. <laughs> But we, I mean, of course, you know, years later, we would finally see Frank, uh, not Frankenstein, uh, Dracula meeting the Wolfman. He threw a vase at him. <laughs> <laughs> well, even in that movie, too, when Universal would finally put the two together, it plays off of some of the feel that you get from Return of the Vampire, where they're antagonistic toward one another. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there should be. I, 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 I wouldn't want to see werewolves and vampires as friends, uh, so to speak. Uh, the exception is the Monster Squad. It worked in that movie. Well, yeah. <laughs> Vampires <laughs> and werewolves living together, total ca- Yeah, no. <laughs> the Wolfman in, in this movie is, is kind of funny. Uh, there, there's, he, he never really acts like a werewolf. There's a scene where these two men come to fight him, and he actually punches one of the guys. Right. And it, it's pretty great. But it that that's also where it leads me to believe that he was originally like a Renfield type character. Mm-hmm. But I'm not complaining. I mean, they t- turn him into a werewolf. That's even better. <laughs> sure. I mean, werewolves make everything better anyway. Typically, usually. T- Twilight yes. aside, so you know you go, <laughs> you go with that, and you know they even threw the sounds of the dog over the sound of the over the fight. So you get the, the snarling and the growling. I do like that scene too. And again, these are two characters that he's fighting, the two detectives that are following him around that could have gone into that bumbling kind of detective role, but they both seem competent just up against something they have no idea how to deal with. When I like the way that that scene plays out too, mm-hmm. because, uh, they're going to just apprehend this guy. Then the camera kind of pans over and you hear the growl that it pans back and he's full on werewolf and, they still tackle him. Um, me, if I saw a guy turn into that, I'd gone. I don't care. I quit my job. Uh, I, no, I'm not equipped for this. <laughs> but so I'll have to give them credit. <laughs> oh, I do like them. I do like the cast, and I like well pretty much everything about this movie. I, I do not find anything in this movie that I that I struggle with. I like the lap dissolves when Andreas does turn into the werewolf. I thought that was handled pretty well. That was cool. I love the monster design in this. I know the Wolfman looks better, but I still like the look of this. I don't know if I'd say he was cute, like you said, but you know, I'm I'm on board. I think I just have so much affection for him that I I find him cute. (laughs) (laughs) I just like him. But one of the more cruel moments in this movie with him that kind of bothers me is uh, there's that moment where Tesla actually just, it's toward the end of the movie where Tesla tells Andreas to go into the corner and die. It's like, man, that is, that is mean. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. He's no. begging him, you know, you, you promise you'll take care of me. Nope. We're done. Nope. Just go into the corner and die. Like that's just, Oh man, that line. (laughs) That that Dracula or that Tesla doesn't mess around. No. And Lugosi, you know, of course, 
delivers it with such conviction. To, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, man. It makes me wonder what Lugosi thought about playing this particular vampire, because when he first got involved with Dracula, it was on the stage. It was a, a stagey production. And as much as I love the original Universal Dracula film, it's very stagey. This one's got a lot of action and movement. Like I said earlier, the camera's moving around a lot because they figured out how to do that now You know, with sound. But he's still able to bring a little bit of the Dracula-ism to it with the close-up of the eyes. You know, he's, he's those intense eyes. And when he's hovering over Nikki with his hand outstretched and, and cocked the way that Dracula would. The eyes on Dracula in the, the original movie, uh, John, John Fulton did that, right? Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the lighting. I wish there was a little bit more of that, like that pin lighting in his eyes. But um, you do still get the close-ups, which mm-hmm. is nice because... Uh, if you if you have Lugosi, you better shoot the eyes. That, that's his, <laughs> his strongest feature. But but you're right though. He he definitely does channel Dracula, especially when he does confront uh, her uh, at the piano. Because oh man, uh, he calls her a fool probably about eight times, <laughs> and that's a very Dracula thing to do. Uh, Dracula loves putting people down. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm favorite thing but uh one of the other th- cool things about this uh with the character of armand tesla is um he talks about his uh hypnotism as though it's psychology and i i kind of wondered if maybe if that's a trait that vampires just have or if that's a holdover from when he was a scientist back before he became a vampire huh it's kind of interesting because he talks about it like it is a science you know um if you can break down someone's will, then you own the man, you know, something like that. I, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Almost implies that may, maybe his hypnotism isn't completely supernatural. Maybe maybe it is something he just learned how to do. <laughs> um, no, that's that, a good that point. No, that's a really good point. You're right, because at the very beginning of the movie, we learned that before he went to the dark side, Tesla was a doctor. So I wonder, you know, we get so many of our ideas about what a vampire is from these older movies. That hypnotism thing, I wonder, man, that's that's a really good point or a good question. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, his his backstory was something I liked about him, too, because mm-hmm. um, I like the idea of, you know, the, the scientist who gets a little too far into his work and becomes the thing that he's studying. Uh, there's something almost kind of Lovecraftian about that. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's really cool. Yeah, so no, I agree. I agree. That's kind of neat. And then, of course, you know, when they're reading the, the book about him, which is a thing they always have in vampire movies of this time, is uh, the vampire in question will always have a book written about him. Like, <laughs> he is famous, uh, but they're only just now finding out who he is because uh, they'll always have a book and then open it up. And sure enough, there's a picture of him right in there. That's the one thing that I struggle about with this movie is that if there's a book with a picture of Tesla in it and Bruckner shows up and he looks a lot like Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, hey, wait a minute. You look pretty healthy there. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't look like a guy who was in a a concentration camp. What's going on here? Uh, I always felt bad for that guy, even though he's not a um, character. You never see him on screen. Bruckner, I feel so bad for him because Andreas was supposed to pick him up and ended up murdering him and stealing his identity. And again, that goes back to the, the whole war thing because it's like, man, this poor guy just got out of a 
horrifying situation at war, and now he's had his identity stolen by a vampire. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, and he's dead. Because Andreas, you never actually see Andreas kill anybody, which I, I think probably had something to do with the production code. You know, you can't have him be the hero if you've seen him kill people. So he just mentions offhand that they're at the bottom of a lake. Right. Which is kind of cool. It almost really reinforces the fact that he is like a henchman almost. Mm -hmm. It's almost gangster kind of quality to it. He's swimming with the fishes now. (laughs) You know, there's so much about this movie to enjoy. I'm a film score guy, so I want to mention the music real quick. Uh, The film score was produced by Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco. I probably mispronounced part of that. Um, Mario Tedesco is how he's credited in the film. And if you look up his information, he was active from the 40s through the 50s. And a lot of his music got reused in other films as stock music. So I think I've heard some of this music in other films. I think so, too, because as I was watching it, I I was noticing certain cues, but couldn't quite Mm. place it. Right. I'm sure I've got some of this music in other of my DVDs and movies. (laughs) It's a good score, nonetheless. I do like it a lot. This was original score for this film. I would love to pick this up on a soundtrack album, a CD. I feel like there's so much awesome music out there that's not on CD that I can't get yet. We need to uh, write to William Stromberg and get him to compose more of those wonderful... uh, monster scores that he was doing for a while Mm -hmm. the moscow symphony orchestra i think Mm -hmm. we'll get him to do this (laughs) like hey remember return of the vampire yeah you should do it (laughs) (laughs) and i don't know how true this is but there might be a connection between mario tedesco and john williams really yeah somebody threw up online somewhere that he was john williams teacher at one point Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if that's true. I, I can't find any other information about that. But if that's the case, we just linked Indiana Jones, Star Wars, all that to this movie. So that's awesome. And also Dracula. Cause, uh, oh, that's Williams right. That. In 79. <laughs> that's right. It all comes full circle. There you go. <laughs> Dracula. Everything at the end of the day, everything in the universe will go back to Dracula. Eventually. <laughs> I think if you try hard enough. If you try hard enough. Uh. <laughs> or Tesla, I guess, if you're working on Columbia's lot. Tesla. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as much as I don't like the fact that he's not Dracula, the name Armand Tesla is a pretty awesome name. Uh, I, I like it quite a bit. <laughs> oh, it's a great name. It's a great name. Granted, Tesla kind of evokes science for me because Tesla. But Same. <laughs> yeah, but it's still a great name. Are you familiar with the books of Dwight Kemper? Not at all, actually. So we've had Dwight on the show a couple of times. He's a writer and actor, and he's written three novels that take place during the production of some of these movies. The Vampire's Tomb Mystery is the third book in the run, and even though in the previous two books it's Bela Lugosi running around with Boris Karloff and Abbott Costello and all these other (laughs) things, he changed the name from Bela Lugosi to Armand Tesla for The Vampire's Tomb Mystery, and... You know, you know, it's because of this movie, and there are some other reasons why he did it. And it's never, oh. not really my story to tell. But <laughs> does he talk about it in the episode? Um, we we talked about it briefly. I don't think we really talked too much as to why the name was changed. But if you read the introduction of the novel itself, okay. it, it explains why. And the Vampire's Two Mystery just got released as a book on tape. That's awesome. Or a book on CD now. 
have to check that out. Big Finish, which it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. Ed Wood's in the book. Forrest J. Ackerman's <laughs> a character. Criswell's a character. Criswell. Well, you yeah. sold me with Criswell. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's sound wonderful. Highly recommend that. Only need some more monster reading. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Our definition of the word need, I think, isn't exactly what everybody else <laughs> uses for the word. I need all these movies. I need all these books. They, they think oxygen and food, you know, and we're, we're like, ah, we need, uh, we need some monster movies. It's, uh, <laughs> Man, I'm feeling like I could go for a little London After Midnight right about now. How about you? You know, that's <laughs> oh man, no, I would kill for some London After Midnight. Actually. Exactly right, but alas, yeah. <laughs> well, what else is there to say about the Return of the Vampire other than it's obvious that we both really love this film? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I saw it, you know, after I'd seen the Universal movies. So it's kind of cool that, you know, after after you watch the Universal movies, there are still movies to watch. You know that. It's like, okay, you've been through all the Universal movies. Wait, there's still more. You're not done yet. There, there's, there are other movies you can be watching right now. Uh, Return of the Vampire is one of the better ones you could choose. Yeah, don't okay. let it end with Universal. I mean, it's really easy to do so because they wrote the book. But there are so many other fantastic films from this era. The Return of the Vampire right there. It's at the top. We mentioned the fog earlier from the opening with the fog and the graveyard. My favorite shot of this whole film is within the first few minutes when he goes floating into the fog. That's amazing to me. I love this film and love so many of the visuals. I, I like the opening narration, yes. too. But the, uh, where Andreas is kind of walking along into the cemetery and then, uh, the narration just talking about the supernatural and, um, yeah, it's a great opening. Uh, and again, it just throws you right into it. You know? mm-hmm. It's a relatively short movie. It's only about an, an hour and ten minutes long. It never has a dull moment. It never really stops. It's just, okay, you're you're in it. Vampire dies. He's back again immediately after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, it continues. And then two monsters for the price of one. So you really can't go wrong. You go back to that. Yeah, we mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier that it feels like an epic movie because it does Span so much time, you know, the World War and the Blitz and all this. But for such a short movie, it packs so much in. And There's you never feel of- rushed. I never felt like they were just speeding along. No, not at all. And I mean, uh, Lady Jane Ansley is definitely the main character mm-hmm. uh, that drives the story. That offers something very different. It's really great. Definitely, yeah, don't stop at the Universal movies. Well, unfortunately, there's only a bare-bones release of this out there. There's not a very comprehensive release of this on DVD. I I wish there was. I would love to see a special edition of this with a documentary behind the scenes. Maybe find some more footage of Legosi melting as the vampire. A good uh, Tom Weaver uh, commentary or something. Oh, it'd be (laughs) great. Like somebody like that. Good commentary track. Uh, I saw it the other day at work. I work at a bookstore and we we had a bin. Uh, It comes as a, a four feature set with Mr. Sardonicus, Revenge of Frankenstein, and Brotherhood of Satan oh. and I, for like five bucks. So you could probably get it on Amazon with those other three movies and a uh, pretty good deal, actually. Um, I actually, it's funny, I don't have it on DVD. I watched this movie on an old VHS tape. Oh, wow. I had found it when I was a kid at Goodwill, of all places, and I've held on to that all these years. <laughs> Well, before the rise of Amazon and eBay, haunting Goodwills and, and pawn shops was a good place to get your hands on a lot of these 
you know, more off the beaten track monster movies. Well, and some of them you still have to. Uh, I recently, speaking of uh, Cry of the Werewolf, I recently got that on eBay because I was trying to complete my 1940s movie collection and found that on eBay. So, and that's never gotten a release uh, digitally, at least the, uh, I don't think it has. And then you have others, you know, I was a teenage werewolf and whatnot. Oh, don't something. get me started on those. <laughs> never see the light of day. Oh, man, it's such a crime. I have them on VHS, though. Are they the VHS tapes where the cover art looks like it's a brick wall? Yeah. 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 Which is cool, because I, I want to get all of them so I can just line them up and have this this brick wall. And people are like, what's that brick wall? Oh, it's one of your old monster movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was looking it up online while we were talking. That four-movie pack that you were mentioning with Return of the Vampire, Revenge of Frankenstein, which, again, solid film, Mr. Sardonicus, so a little bit of William Castle action, and Brotherhood of Satan, 733 on Amazon. That's yeah, a good deal. And if you want yeah. just the movie Return of Dracula... 539 by itself. And it's available on Amazon streaming. Get the pack because uh, Mr. Sardonicus is probably my favorite William Castle movie. <laughs> really? I don't know many people who say that. Really? Oh, I, I love it. I, I love the, the cruel ending of it. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm starting to think. It's like, okay, the Tingler is up there too. So, yeah, it's hard. Bill Castle made nothing but good movies. So. Speaking of Bill Castle, yeah, uh, he ended up working with Columbia, too, later down the road. So you can almost uh, look at Return of the Vampire as really the start of an era, in a way, because kind of opened the doors for Columbia doing more supernatural-type movies. Uh, you had the Bill Castle stuff. Like I'd mentioned, Sam Katzman, Ray Harryhausen. You know, all those guys worked for Columbia later down the road. So uh, you look at... Return of the Vampire almost is the beginning of an era <laughs> in that aspect. You can see that. You can see that kind of yeah. open the door for the crypt. <laughs> the crypt, yeah. <laughs> well, prior to that, you just had the Boris Karloff vehicles, which weren't really supernatural. They were more science-based. No, um, and they're good. They're really good. Yeah. I highly recommend all of them. There's that uh, really great set that uh, Sony put out. It's the Icons of Horror Boris Karloff collection, and... Uh, it's got all of them on there, and uh, they're really wonderful. And again, going back into, yeah, don't stop yourself at Universal. Um, there's plenty of stuff from Columbia, RKO, especially RKO, that just needs to be seen because they're just as good and different. Each studio really had their own niche, their own type of thing that they did. And um, even when copying, in the case of Return of the Vampire, um, they still did something very different with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it stands out. It's its own beast. It's not just, you know, again, I'm, I'm talking about the Mummy movies with Nicholas Hatcher right now, and I love them, but it's oh, yeah. real hard to kind of keep them straight. The Mummy's oh, Tomb, yeah. the Hand, the, the Ghost, whatever. They they do kind of blend a little bit because it is the same story over and over and over again. A good story, one that I enjoy, but they do kind of blend together into one mummy mix. This one is its own beast. Oh, yeah, Return of the Vampire. I mean, you, you say I was reading about it on uh, Wikipedia the other day, and uh, apparently there's a reference to it on um, Sanford and Son actually had a reference to it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, Fred G. Sanford is watching it on TV, and uh, they, they referenced it. So, yeah, uh, and he says, okay, I'm reading it now. If you like surprise ending, boy, you're really going to like this one. And he goes on to explain the surprise ending. And 
Yeah, even though there is no surprise ending, but still, it's it's, it's interesting that they actually showed Return of the Vampire outside of on anything. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it definitely stands on its own. Um, I mean, at least for us monster kids, uh, I knew I knew Return of the Vampire when I was uh, old enough to read. So, <laughs> just old enough to read. <laughs> yeah, it stands well on its own. But yeah, it should should definitely be sought out. And again, there are more universal type movies out there for mm-hmm. anyone willing to look. And I'm sure most of the people who are listening to this have probably heard of it or um, maybe even seen it, probably seen it. And they should if they haven't. Yeah. I mean, we did spoil some bits here and there, but there's still so much more. Yeah, I forgot to say, spoiler. <laughs> That's... I think most of these movies are outside of that spoiler statute of limitations. Most of the movies we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. So. Yeah, they're like 60, 70 years old. So. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you haven't seen it, it's on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ron, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me about this movie. This is definitely one of my favorite Bela Lugosi films. And to Same have an here. opportunity to talk about a movie from the 40s. I feel like sometimes on Monster Kid Radio, we get very 50s and 60s heavy. So to go back a little bit, it's good to do. So thank you. Oh, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor, actually. I love the show. I love your work. And uh, I like talking about monsters. So it's always great. (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, I follow you on Facebook. But at one point, you were looking to launch a podcast as well. Is that still something that'll happen? Yeah, I'm actually thinking about doing that. And just doing this actually kind of sparked my interest in doing it again. Before, I was just having trouble getting guests and stuff. But um, I kind of want to do I've been thinking about doing a solo show and just kind of doing, like, the history of horror, you know, and just doing a different year, going year by year Ooh. and kind of picking a couple of my favorite horror movies of that year and uh, talking about them. Almost done. And then also fantasy films too. Uh, I don't want to limit myself to horror. So right so. now I'm doing a tops, podcast, tops. a fantastic cinema podcast so that I could give it more of an umbrella term. Okay. I wanted to make sure that we direct people to where that may be launching. That's fantastic cinema podcast.wordpress.com. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic cinema podcast.wordpress.com. I have a blog spot too that I'm starting up where I'm reviewing a film a day. Oh, wow. I started doing that before, but then got behind. So I'm actually building up a back catalog of reviews so that I can get ahead and then uh, start posting a review a day. And that, that's at cinema capsule.wordpress.com. Okay. Well, we will make sure there's links to these sites in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net and ron we got to have you back on the show oh i would love to come back yeah anytime you want to talk about any kind of movie like this i'm always thrilled to do so (laughs) and if you do get the podcast up and running let me know we'll make sure we talk about it here on the show okay Oh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll have you as a guest. Ooh, uh, oh, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, I wasn't going to ask, but, you know, if you want. <laughs> when Ron gets up and running, you're going to want to go to fantasticcinemapodcast.wordpress.com or cinemacapsule.wordpress.com. These are his websites. We'll make sure there's links to these sites in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Ron, we're going to have you back on the show in the future, and best of luck to you with your podcasting efforts. And, you know, I follow Ron on Facebook, and recently he posted some artwork of him. He did a watercolor of Edward Scissorhands, and it looked awesome. I didn't get a chance to say anything on Facebook yet, so Ron, if you're listening, it looked really, really good. (laughs) 
years I have searched for a unique way whereby a motion picture audience can actually decide the climax of a picture. I have found such a way. My latest picture, Mr. Sodonicus, offers something no audience has ever had before. The power to determine the fate of a character on the screen. The power to punish. In ancient Rome, spectators could decree life or death to a gladiator by indicating thumbs up or thumbs down. During the French Revolution, the mobs could condemn a man by merely shouting, to the guillotine. In the early West, vigilantes took the law into their own hands. Today, for the first time, the awful power to punish will be yours. After you see the evil events that made Mr. Sodonicus what he was, you will decide what should be done to him. You will now see some scenes from the picture. The face of Mr. Sodonicus will not be shown, because I realize that some people in this audience might be adversely affected by it. Those of you who come to see Mr. Sodonicus will understand why. Mr. Sardonicus. What makes his name strike terror? Sardonicus? Why were you frightened? Uh, sir, you would not understand. You are young. You do not yet have daughters. Why does his wife live in abject fear? If you do not heal him, you will punish me. Surely he wouldn't beat you. His cleverness knows a more hideous torture. What strange attraction did young women have for him? What secrets are hidden behind his doors? Mr. Sardonicus. His deeds formed a fabric of nightmares. His face, the face of Sardonicus can be described only in the eyes of its beholders. Mr. Sardonicus, in spite of all his cruelties, some people will think he deserves mercy. Others will feel that no punishment could be too severe. When you come to see Mr. Sardonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this. At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down. His punishment will depend on the result of your vote. Like I said, I had two voicemails from Stephen D. Sullivan. Hey, Derek, and all you newbie Whovians out there, this is Steve Sullivan calling in because you're talking about Doctor Who, and even though I haven't finished your second episode... There are a couple of things you guys need to know. Eric Roberts not a terrible way to start Doctor Who because he at least connects the old show and the new show, and you get to see Sylvester McCoy in that show, which is his 
immediate predecessor as the Doctor, who, of course, in the movies is called Doctor Who, which never happens. One reason why it's not in the continuity. Here's a bigger one that you guys don't know. Doctor Who, both of the movies are remakes of television shows that had previously aired. That's right. Everything that's there has been on the television show being portrayed by William Hartnell. And that includes, here's another thing apparently you don't know, the Doctor's granddaughter, Susan Foreman, who was his first companion in the show, along with Ian and Barbara, who were in the first movie, all, of course, played by different people, and who continued with the Doctor all the way through a Dalek invasion of Earth. So all of that is familiar stuff. The Doctor does have a granddaughter, therefore, in theory, has a wife and some kind of a son or daughter and a granddaughter. So that's kind of cool. Wrap your minds around it because it's all there in the original continuity. The last thing I wanted to mention is the design of the TARDIS in the movies is not so good. In the original series, pretty much all the way up to Paul McGann, there is a classic look to the TARDIS, and it involves having big modern circles on the walls and kind of a very clean design and not a lot of crap around except for the central console that he runs the whole TARDIS from. The movies didn't have that. It looks like stagey sets. Not nearly so cool. But you did get it right that the chameleon circuit is stuck because in the original Doctor Who episode, he's back in the 60s, and back then they had police boxes, and it blended in. So all those are things that you guys don't know because you started with the new Who, which is why I'm recommending that Derek might want to start with the Pertwee's Doctor Who number two, which is when the show went to color, and also because those shows are very much Quatermass influenced. Anyway, that's it for now. I'm sure there will be more. <laughs> Take care. Have a great one. Bye. Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan here with some more Doctor Who info for you guys that are new. I first became acquainted with Doctor Who when Famous Monsters of Filmland ran an article about it back in the early 70s, if I recall right. And then there was a local station out of Worcester, I lived near Boston, that was playing Doctor Who episodes Sunday afternoon or something like that. But it was in the UHF days, you know, when there were three major networks and a couple of UHF channels, and some of the channels were just horrible to get. And basically all I remember watching was uh, a guy running around a police box out in the middle of a field somewhere. It might have been a Pertwee episode. Anyway, I've, I've been with it for a long long while and really got into it in the Baker days when Channel 11 in Chicago started bringing over Baker episodes and then all the episodes. So I've seen most of them, uh, at least the ones that were available at the time. They've since managed to restore some more, which I haven't seen all of yet. Yet! Anyway, uh, it's important for you guys to remember that Doctor Who was a BBC show, so there were no commercials. There was one long segment that basically ran probably somewhere between 25 and 30 minutes, probably close to 27. So a show was just one long segment, and the series was made up of sets of shows. The Daleks, the original Daleks episode, I looked it up, and it ran seven episodes, so seven half-hour shows for that Dalek episode that then got condensed into the movie. The Dalek Invasion of Earth was six half-hour episodes, so two and a half hours worth of stuff, more or less, that they then condensed into the movie. So it's important that you you realize they had way more stuff than they were actually able to fit in there, though often people would say that the six-episode arcs 
seemed to have some padding that the four-episode arcs didn't. Four episodes was kind of normal. Anyway, I thought you'd want to know about that. I'm interested in this change in format you're doing. I support you, whatever you're doing. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it all works out. And hopefully it's a, a good change for your life and all that kind of stuff. And Monster Kid Radio rolls on, though you won't be piling up episode numbers as quickly. Talk to you soon. Bye. Steve, thank you for calling in with that information about Doctor Who. I knew that the Daleks movie, at least the Daleks movie, I wasn't 100% sure on the previous film, but I knew at least the Daleks film, the one that Casey and I talked about, was based on the previous run of TV episodes. And I think we might have mentioned that in episode 232, but I'm not 100% sure I'd have to go back and re-listen. Although I don't have a lot of time to go back and re-listen to all of my old podcasts because I'm always trying to find times to watch all these movies and TV shows. I am slowly making a dent on the Dark Shadows series. An awesome listener sent me a near complete run of the Dark Shadows television series, and I would love to dive in to Doctor Who. So we'll see what happens. While I don't necessarily always go back and listen to my old completed episodes of the podcast, I will hold on to your voicemail and re-listen to it so I have a jumping off point or a jumping in point you know, when I have time to dive into Doctor Who, I feel like I am missing out. I feel like there are certain parts of my fandom that are empty or have not been touched or encouraged. Doctor Who's one of them. The Dark Shadow series is one of them. I'm getting into a lot of Ultraman right now. And while I haven't watched nearly all of the Ultraman, what I've seen, I've loved. If only there was more time in the day to podcast more. And in a weird reverse way, that kind of ties into what something Steven said about the change in format here on Monster Kid Radio. The reason he knew about the format change is because Steve is a patron of Monster Kid Radio. He supports Monster Kid Radio through Patreon. And I sent a message out earlier this week to all the Patreon patrons to let them know what's coming in case he wanted to change their pledge levels. And by the way, guys, it's totally cool if you do. I totally understand because we are going to be changing things a little bit here on MKR. This is sounding kind of ominous. Don't worry. Show's not going anywhere. We're just going to change it up a little bit. Now, from almost the very beginning of Monster Kid Radio's existence, we've done two shows a week, a Tuesday and Thursday show. There was a small period there about two years ago when I had to go with just a weekly show. I was recovering from having my gallbladder removed and there was a car accident. But for the most part, it's always been twice a week. Well, we're going to change that. Starting next week, Monster Kid Radio is going to a weekly schedule. This does not mean you're not going to get all the content you normally get here on Monster Kid Radio. It's just that instead of downloading two episodes, you only have to download one. And you're going to get the same conversation that you would normally get here on Monster Kid Radio with me and whatever guests I have along for the ride. I just won't be chopping that conversation into two, hopefully, equal-ish type pieces. You're going to get the whole conversation all at once, no cuts. The only difference in content that you may receive is instead of getting two surf songs a week, you're only going to get one because there's only one episode a week. Now, in the future, this might go back to a twice-a-week schedule. Who knows what the future holds? You know, Criswell might be able to tell us, but I can't. And until Criswell comes back from the grave and sits me down and gives me a prediction, we just have to go with what's happening now. The reason we're doing this, there's a couple. I hate to be that guy when it comes to podcasting, but when I look at my download numbers, I see that more often than not, the Tuesday episode has more downloads than the following Thursday episode. And I don't know what exactly the reason behind that is. I have some ideas, but I'm not 100% sure how or why that happens. So instead of chopping the conversations up into two episodes, we're going to do one. Also, this is going to free up 
my time a little bit because I'm not going to be doing two sets of introductions and outros and that sort of thing. I'm only going to be doing one. I know it's not a lot, but it's still going to free up a little bit of time and allow me to focus on some more Monster Kid Radio related, specific, kind of sort of in the wheelhouse projects, which I'm very excited about. And I think you guys and gals will be excited about it too. If you've gotten used to having new content every Tuesday and Thursday, well, I would recommend that instead of playing the entire episode on Tuesday, just stop about halfway through. And then on Thursday, just hit resume. And it'll be like it's two episodes for you. And I'm still just doing one episode's worth of work. Not that I mind doing the work. In fact, editing audio and producing podcasting, I absolutely love. It's one of the things that gives me the most joy in life. I love producing podcasts. So don't worry. Monster Kid Radio is not going anywhere. We're just changing how we're releasing the content that we come up with. Speaking of content, I want to let you know what's coming up in the near future here on Monster Kid Radio. I have a conversation with Tony Wendell from The Gigantic Project. We're going to talk about the film War of the Gargantuas. Tom Bigler's making his return to Monster Kid Radio, and we're going to talk about the movie First Men in the Moon. And then Paul McComas is coming to Monster Kid Radio as well. He happened to be in the Pacific Northwest area on some other business, and he found some time to come by Monster Kid Radio headquarters, and he and I sat down face-to-face to talk about the six Inner Sanctum films from Universal, starring one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Lon Chaney Jr. Also, I've got the Rose City Comic Con coming up here in a couple of weeks in Portland, Oregon. That's going to be happening on September 19th and 20th. And yeah, you know I'm bringing my recorder along. Hopefully I can get some content that's relevant to Monster Kid Radio. There's not a lot of classic monster movie stuff happening there, but there are a few things that I'm going to be targeting. I'm going to be hitting the convention floor on the 20th specifically, attending a few panels, and bringing my recorder from booth to booth, seeing if there's anybody who wants to talk on the show. Looking forward to seeing some old friends at the convention. And if you're in the area and you want to meet up, Drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or just look for the big guy with the Monster Kid Radio shirt. I don't really blend in very well. I'm hard to miss. That brings us to the end of the final for now Thursday episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to send everybody over to monsterkidradio.net where you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. I mentioned our email address earlier. I'll do it again. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. That's on our website as well as our voicemail line. It's 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Also on our website, you can find a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio. You can help support the show financially that way. You can join the Facebook group and get involved with conversations with other Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes or even while you listen. If you're a Facebook user, head over to the group and sound off about what you think about this going to a once a week format. Also on our website, you can subscribe to the Monster Rally Checkpoint e-newsletter. This is monthly. It happens at the end of the month. Put in your email address, hit subscribe, and then once a month, you're going to get original content to your email box from me, Monster Movie Trivia Questions, a column called The Creature Connection. And this month, there will be a review in the newsletter about the movie that just came out on Amazon streaming, The Creep Behind the Camera. If you want to read my review on that, subscribe to the e-newsletter. I think that's about it. Of course, if you're interested in hearing more of the music that you hear here on the show, 
hear here on the show? Well, click on the songs button at our website and you're going to see a listing of every single band, every single song, and what episode that song appeared in. So you can check out those bands and support them by picking up their albums. And a lot of times through Bandcamp, it's pretty cheap. So go check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Next week, I'm not 100% sure which of the three conversations I already have in the can is going to be our debut episode of our new once a week format. You're just going to have to come back to monsterkidradio.net or Stitcher or iTunes to find out. Until then, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Hang 10, El Diablo. That is from the album Surfing One Hell of a Wave. It's from the band The Lurids. You can find them at facebook.com slash the Lurids or go to the Lurids.bandcamp.com. However you go there, let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week.